Today's uh, scriptural reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betroth you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts would be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone cares and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrain and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is the word of the Lord. All right, thanks, Kendrew, for that reading. Uh, before I start, let's, uh, let's just bow our heads in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you just for your word, and at this time, we pray that you would uh, feed us with your word, uh, your spirit would be at work within our hearts and help us to um, receive that word, um, delight in that word, as the Psalms all, often do, um, uh, but also allow the, the power of that word to uh, transform uh, our very hearts and our desires. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I read a story from one of the commentaries that I'm I guess, reading alongside of the sermon series. Uh, his name is Tom Wright, and uh, he tells a story about how he was taking his young son to school on a very rainy day. And when they were at the school, you know, his, his son's wearing, like, the raincoat and the boots and all those things, and uh, because his son was, like, a, a young boy, you know, all the benches are, like, very low because it's designed for young kids. And so he sat down on the bench that was designed for young children enough to get low enough to take his young son's rain boots off. And then, uh, uh, I guess behind him was like a, another father 
who was sitting on a regular chair and helping his son get all of his uh, rain stuff out. And his Tom Wright's son said, hey, daddy, uh, that man is so much bigger than you. And then, you know, he stood up and it turns out that Tom Wright was actually much bigger than that man. And his son was mistaken because his perspective was a little off. And it's like a, a very simple story and it's not like a you know, it's not like a haha kind of story, but it's a fairly common story that I think illustrates how you know, people and especially young children can reach the wrong conclusions when their perspectives are just a little bit off. We're going through 2 Corinthians, and the reason we're going through 2 Corinthians is because I wanted to reflect on the themes of weakness and power. And Paul, what he's doing in this letter is he is addressing the, in the Corinthian church uh, a place where their perspective is just a little bit off, and therefore they are jumping to the wrong conclusions with respect to Paul's ministry. Uh, there were these false teachers that uh, came into the church that Paul, he sarcastically labels these super apostles in verse 5. And these were people who, um, maybe they were wealthier than Paul, they had some status, they had some influence, they were definitely better rhetorical speakers. And therefore, the Corinthians were saying, you know, those people, these quote-unquote super apostles, they are the ones who are powerful, they are the ones who are strong, and therefore, they're the ones who should be leading us and not somebody like the Apostle Paul. And conversely, Paul, you know, he, he looks so weak, he looks so frail. Uh, Paul is somebody that doesn't have a lot of money, he's poor, and therefore he's working as a tent maker. And he isn't a great rhetorical speaker, and his life is full of a lot of suffering. And therefore, uh, some people in the Corinthian church, they're looking at Paul and they're saying, you know, he's not as respectable as these quote-unquote super apostles, and therefore they were challenging his apostolic authority. But just as the child who assumed that his father was smaller uh, because he didn't have the right perspective, the Corinthians are assuming that Paul is not a respectable leader because he's weak. Uh, they adopted this worldly perspective rather than a kingdom perspective, because in the kingdom, God reveals his power through the weak things of this world. And therefore, it's only when we begin to embrace weakness that we will begin to see that we have access to real, genuine power, the power that comes from God himself. Uh, one of the things that Paul did in Corinth was he refused to be, receive any kind of financial support from the Corinthians. Uh, from this affluent church. And starting in verse 17, that's what he's addressing. He says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And what he's talking about is actually he drew support, financial support from the churches in Macedonia, which were the, if you remember from chapter 8, they were the, the poorer churches. Uh, but he intentionally did not receive financial support from the Corinthians. And that, of course, brings up a few questions to our mind. Questions like, well, why wouldn't he accept financial support from the Corinthians? And even if he didn't receive financial support from the Corinthians, why is that scandalous to them, right? You would think, oh, this person's not receiving our finances. Uh, he must be so great. But they found it to be very scandalous. And why is that? Well, Paul knew something about the Corinthian church. He knew that they had a spiritual problem of pride, that they boasted in the wrong things. They boasted in things like their affluence. They boasted in things like their status. And Paul, he didn't want to feed into those things because they were contrary to the gospel message that he proclaimed. You see, back in those days, in that society in particular, when itinerant teachers would go around and teach things, uh, they would receive payment for uh, what they were teaching, and it was kind of a way of like legitimizing them as teachers. 
it's not so different from the world that we live in today because, hey, if someone today speaks on, in public on matters of uh, politics or finances or even of Christianity uh, and they yield some kind of large payment for their speaking engagement, the assumption that people will make is, oh, this is, this is an expert in that field. Otherwise, why would they be getting paid to, to speak? Uh, they must be a worthy teacher. And therefore, getting paid uh, for teaching ends up being a way of elevating status. And Paul, he, he wants to combat that kind of value system because it isn't consistent with the gospel that he preached. The power of the gospel is not found in the gifts or in the talents or in the influence of the one who is preaching, but the power of the gospel is found in its contents, in the crucified Messiah, the resurrected Christ. And so what Paul decides to do is he decides to lower his own status within Corinth, and he works as a tent maker while these quote-unquote super apostles are making a pretty good living off of their teaching. And what that ended up doing was that made Paul seem like a less respectable leader according to the value systems of Corinth. When I think about value systems, uh, it's hard not to make certain parallels with some of the value systems I think you see in maybe uh, you can call it American Christianity. Uh, I had this seminary professor, and he was known for critiquing uh, the dynamics of celebrity culture that sometimes you find in uh, American evangelicalism. So I actually remember his very first chapel talk when I was a seminary student, and he, uh, he preached from 1 Corinthians, and he talked about the cult of personality. And a few years ago, you know, he was actually invited to one of these like big uh, Christian conferences. It's actually the one I went to like a couple weeks ago. And, uh, you know, he didn't really want to go. He didn't like those kind of things, and he thought it perpetuated celebrity culture, but eventually he agreed to go and to be part of this panel that actually discussed celebrity culture within American Christianity. And uh, while he was at that, on that panel, you know, he critique, critiqued a lot of, like, conferences that happened, uh, and he critiqued the one that he was at. <laughs> so he said, you know, all of these conferences, why do you see, like, the same eight to ten speakers all the time? Because what it does is it gives you the impression that the gospel can only be preached effectively by a handful of people in the world. And the, when the, in reality, uh, the gospel is not really rocket science. A lot of people can faithfully preach the gospel, but that message gets lost when you have these same eight to ten conference speakers going around all these conferences and headlining these conferences. And then he said, you know, look, I understand how the business of conferences work, and you need well-known people to headline them, otherwise nobody will sign up and go to these conferences. But then he said, well, but why not fill like a few of these slots with speakers that nobody has ever heard of? Why not get a few speakers that are good gospel preachers, but they pastor small churches that nobody has ever heard of. Then you offer some kind of resistance to the value system of American culture and celebrity culture, and you communicate the message that, look, it is the word of God that goes out and does the work rather than the gifts and talents and personality of the one who is preaching it. Corinth had a very similar value system, and one of the problems with adopting this kind of value system in Corinth is it actually allowed false teachers to enter into the church and deceive some within the church. Uh, that's what the first half of the passage is about. Uh, if you were here last week, last week we saw that Paul, he talked about spiritual warfare, and he talked about it in the context of like the battle for the mind, uh, the battle for thoughts. And uh, one of the things I said last week is it's not really an intellectual problem. We think the battle for the mind is ultimately an intellectual problem, but I said it's ultimately a spiritual problem. At least that's the paradigm that Paul is working with here. 
smart people and very educated people and people that you would consider intelligent can still be deceived. Uh, we're probably more aware of that today than maybe ever before because uh, I don't know if you have this experience, but I think this is a common experience across America, but someone that you assume to be smart and educated, they might uh, believe something that you consider to be you know, crazy and unintelligible and maybe rooted in disinformation, and you say, oh man, I can't believe this person uh, believes that. I thought they were smarter than that. Or uh, you know, think about all the people Bernie Madoff defrauded. I assume that uh, a lot of these like executives and things like that I assume they have some amount of intelligence, right? But they were deceived. It tells you smart people get deceived all the time because deception is not about intelligence. The problem with deception is that it feels true to you and therefore you find ways to justify what feels true to you by filtering in the information that comes in. And that is actually a bit about how Satan works, about how he deceives people. And in verse 3, you see Paul, he talks about how the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. God said one thing. He said, do not eat of this tree. The serpent comes in, introduces a new thought, and makes God seem completely unreasonable because the serpent says, did God really say you can't eat from this one tree? And of course, the framing matters, right? Because in reality, God was very gracious and said, hey, look, there's all these other trees in the garden. You can eat from any of these trees, but this one tree, don't eat from this one tree. But now the serpent comes in and he focuses on this one tree and he says, hey, did God really say you can't eat from this one tree? And that introduces kind of, uh, I guess, some doubt in terms of, oh, is God really good to me? Or is God being completely unreasonable? And when that enters in, then the serpent strikes directly and he lies and he says, if you eat of this tree, you will not surely die, but you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the rest is history. And that deception, that's how sin enters into the world. That's how Satan gets us to believe in lies. He makes God seem unreasonable, and then he appeals to the desire of our hearts, and then he tells a lie that we are readily uh, wanting to believe. In a similar way, Paul warns the Corinthians, and just as a serpent deceived Eve, uh, it says, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So he's using that Genesis story and saying, look, this is going to happen to you too with these false teachers. And ultimately, why I'm concerned, why I'm worried is your thoughts will be led astray from this sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, I want to connect this to something that Paul says earlier. He says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a virgin to Christ. And when we think about jealousy, we usually think about it as an entirely negative thing uh, because we associate jealousy with envy. So, for example, if you wanted a promotion but you don't get it and another colleague gets it, maybe you feel jealous. Um, maybe if you're single and your friend gets engaged and gets married, maybe you feel a little jealous. You see, we get jealous deep within our hearts uh, because we want what others have, but Wanting what others have is actually envy. So what makes envy and jealousy a little bit different? I think envy uh, makes us feel like we're entitled to it, but the, in reality, just because we want something doesn't necessarily mean we are entitled to it. Uh, with that said, I, that's why I do think there's an appropriate time to be jealous. The appropriate time to be jealous is when we are actually rightfully entitled to something. And what's an example of that? Marriage. Marriage is an example of that. 
Uh, marriage is a covenant relationship, and there is an agreement that's made through vows by both parties, by husband and wife, that they will be faithful to one another. And because of those vows, both parties in a marriage are entitled to the faithfulness of the other spouse. And if the spouse, if one spouse is unfaithful, then it is entirely appropriate to be jealous because of that covenant relationship. And that's why the Bible says God is a jealous God because uh, we are in covenant relationship with him and therefore he, he is entitled to our faithfulness to him. And that's why at the beginning of the passage, Paul also says he feels a divine jealousy for the Corinthians. And that's why he has a deep concern for their devotion to Christ. Their devotion to Christ should be sincere, should be pure, and should be completely undivided. Now, one of the reasons we can be deceived is that Satan won't necessarily say, hey, don't be devoted to Jesus. I think that's a little bit too obvious. But rather what Satan would say is, look, be devoted to Jesus and be devoted to something else, right? Be devoted to Jesus and be devoted to power. Be devoted to Jesus and be devoted to money. Be devoted to Jesus and be devoted to status. Whatever it is, uh, be devoted to Jesus, be devoted to your career. In other words, I think the way to draw us away from a sincere devotion to Christ is actually by telling us, hey, you can have it all. You can have everything you want. You could be devoted to everything. You can be devoted to the kingdom of heaven, and you can be devoted to the kingdom of this world. And the reason why that's so deceptive is because it does seem to work at first. Uh, but what eventually happens is our devotion to Jesus starts to get overtaken by our devotion to something else because in time we will have to choose what our greater devotion will be. While it is true that for many things in life we can actually choose two things at once, uh, there are some things where eventually we will have to choose. Uh, we can choose to have cake and coffee, right? It's not a dichotomy of either or. Maybe you can have career and family, Maybe there will be a time where you'll have to choose. And what's more important, your career or your family? Similarly, I think there will come a time where we'll ha we will have to decide what are we ultimately devoted to. And if we think we can serve two masters, which Jesus says we cannot, then the one that is not Jesus will have a subtle way of kind of invading our hearts unless we guard our hearts from it. That's why Paul says in verse 14 that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light because ultimately it is the good things that are most dangerous to us in terms of having a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but it, you know, it reminds me of the parable of the sower. Uh, in the parable of the sower, you know, Jesus talks about like seeds that are sown <clears throat> into soil, and then when he interprets that parable, uh, he said, there is a seed that's going to be sown among the thorns. And uh, the one that's sown among the thorns, it's like the person who hears the word, right? So initially, there's, there's fruit being born because they hear the word, they receive the word. But then the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches end up choking the word. And the Corinthians, they're in danger of that right here by allowing this desire for power and status and being elevated and being associated with like the influential and the quote-unquote cool people, they're allowing that desire to potentially choke the word that Paul had sown through the preaching of the real Jesus and the right gospel. The real Jesus and the right gospel, it actually tells us, it shows us what it means to have a sincere and pure devotion to something because God shows it to us with his devotion to us. 
His heart is actually undivided with respect to us. How do we know? Because the right gospel tells us about his devotion to us. The right gospel says that the real Jesus didn't come in power and glory, but rather he entered into this world being born in a dirty manger, and he left this world by dying upon a cursed tree. The right gospel shows us that the real Jesus didn't disguise himself as something good like an angel of light, but Jesus was stripped down, naked, and ashamed, looking like a common criminal. The right gospel shows us that rather than putting on this disguise, Jesus put on something else. He put on our sin, and he endured everything that that entails, the Father turning his face away from him, darkness falling over the earth, the wrath of God being fully poured out upon him for all of our sins. The right gospel tells us that through this horrific experience of weakness, shame, loss, death, low status, Jesus achieved victory for us, victory over sin and death. He was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he sent the right spirit to dwell among us. <clears throat> now, if all of this is true, how can these super apostles claim, hey, it's, it's my ability to make money, it's, it's my power and influence over people, it's uh, my gifts as a rhetorical speaker, it's my status as somebody that's respectable in society. How can they claim that this is the same gospel that Paul preached? How can they, the Corinthians embrace these false teachers and receive this false gospel of wealth, power, influence, gifts, and status when they know that the gospel that Paul brought to them was about Christ and him crucified? That's why when Paul boasts, and we're going to see this more next week, he boasts in his weakness. Because weakness is the way through which the power of the gospel was revealed. Uh, one of the innovations, I'm almost done here, uh, one of the innovations from the Protestant Reformation was uh, it centered the proclamation of God's word in the church service. So you can tell if, uh, generally speaking, not all Protestant churches, but you can tell if it's a Protestant church when, right, you see like the pulpit in the middle and everything's kind of directed towards the preaching of the word, whereas if you step foot into a Catholic church, usually what you see front and center is uh, the Lord's table um, because it's through the sacraments in which you, um, you I guess, get more of Jesus. Uh, since I'm a Protestant, I think it's a good innovation, but uh, I was thinking about it, and, you know, that's not to say that there aren't dangers in centering the preaching of the word. And one of those dangers is it can actually make the preacher seem more important than the content of the preaching. Uh, all the preacher is doing is illuminating uh, the message of the gospel. All the preacher is supposed to do is illuminate the beauty of Jesus. And the preacher is not here to say, hey, look at me, right? I'm on a platform. Look how gifted I am. Uh, to me, a successful sermon is not the one where someone says, oh, that speaker was so good. The success successful sermon is the one where someone says, man, Jesus is good, <laughs> right? Jesus is good. And of course, that's a challenge for both uh, myself as a preacher and the hearer of the word because uh, it's, it's one that we have to guard ourselves from, uh, especially as people of the Protestant tradition. And that's why I think Celebrating the sacraments 
It's so important. That's what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to have communion today. And the reason why this meal is so good is it actually decenters the, the preacher and it really centers on the message of the meal itself. Uh, it shows us that what we are to remember is the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Uh, we even use Jesus' own very words to institute the meal. We come in as beggars in need of faith. We come in uh, with hands uh, that can only be in a position to say, I need, I need, uh, I want to receive. And the nice thing about this meal is the preacher fades into the background. There's no sermon prep. There's no funny and engaging and cool illustration, even though that's not a bad thing, right? But, uh, but the preacher kind of fades into the background, and all that you're left with together, all of us, is to focus on what this meal is preaching to our hearts. And we need, we need that. Uh, we need that when the surrounding culture is all about celebrity, especially in New York. We need that when everything around us is telling us, hey, you need to make more money. You need more people to respect you. Uh, you need to be higher status. We need this meal. Uh, and, you know, I, I think we are going through a season. I think the pandemic has done this. I don't know if it's like a season in, in life of our church where... Uh, it kind of feels like we're being stripped down. <laughs> uh, you know, running, running a service is, you know, getting, like, tougher, and things aren't, like, as, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, as, like, polished as maybe it used to be back in the day, and um, I guess that could be a, a bad thing or a discouraging thing. Um, I know community life is definitely getting harder and all those things, and I get the sense that, you know, we probably looked at church... Um, with certain things, right? Oh, this church has certain strengths, and therefore, this is what I want out of church. Uh, I want, yeah, I want Jesus, but I also want Jesus and community, or I want Jesus and uh, I want to hear a good sermon. Um, of course, those things are not bad in itself, but sometimes when we're getting stripped down, it just kind of leads us to reflect on our own hearts and say, what is our ultimate devotion beyond all of those things? And I think this is an opportunity for us to say our devotion is to Jesus. Not all this extra stuff. Not Jesus plus whatever it is. But Christ and him crucified. The right gospel. The true gospel. The message that we all need but sometimes forget that we need. The person that we all need but sometimes forget that is ultimately who we need. And so let's, uh, let's pray, and we're going to respond to a song in worship, and then uh, we'll come and celebrate uh, the Lord's table as we remember Jesus. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, we do confess that we have been so conditioned to, um, maybe in very subtle ways, to, uh, to think to ourselves that Jesus is not enough. Um, you know, certainly I, I get into those uh, seasons and feel that temptation. Um, but I pray that today you remind us, um, especially if we feel like, you know, we're kind of stripped down and, um, you know, the other 
benefits that come to uh, knowing Christ and to being part of a church, uh, when those things begin to overtake this sincere and pure devotion to Christ, uh, I pray, God, that uh, if, if you are stripping those things away, uh, you would redirect our focus and attention to, to Jesus himself, the one who died upon a cross for us, the gospel that Paul preached, the simple gospel that Jesus died for our sin, and three days later he was raised from the dead, and because of his resurrection that we now have hope and security and life eternal. Uh, this simple and pure gospel help us to remain devoted with a sincere and pure devotion. In Jesus' name we pray.